Good morning. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. It's a joy to be in the house of the Lord. You guys would stand with us. We will worship the Lord through song this morning. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God all my life all my life you have been faithful and all my life you have been so so be seated. Good morning and welcome to Faith Bible Church on this wonderful Sunday morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Uh, my name is Seth Brown. I'm the pastor of Adult Connections and I'm awkwardly standing up here without a podium. 
so weird. Uh, that's okay. Uh, we want to welcome you to Faith Bible on this last Sunday uh, of our sanctuary, using our sanctuary space. Next Sunday, we'll be moving into our new worship center, uh, formerly the gym, and we are excited about that. I've been thinking a lot about this room this week, the sanctuary, and all the sermons that have been preached here, uh, all the baptisms that we've witnessed, uh, all of the people who have come to Christ in this room, and I'm thankful for this room, uh, but we are excited about what God is going to do next. Uh, no big pillars in the middle of the room, no random side doors that go out to the outside, uh, no long and narrow room anymore. We're going to the new sanctuary, our new worship center next Sunday, and we hope you will join us there at both 9.30 and 11, no 8 o'clock service. And so uh, it's an exciting time to be at Faith Bible Church. ABFs, uh, a lot of ABFs are moving around, uh, and so check with your ABF leaders about your new time and, and perhaps your new space. Uh, the youth will be meeting at 9.30 next week instead of 9.30 and 11, so they'll only meet at 9.30, which is a change as well. And so, again, we want you to know about all these changes and be uh, looking forward to them as much as we are. For those of you who are new uh, with us at Faith Bible this morning, thank you for, so much for being here. Uh, we hope that you feel welcomed and encouraged by your time. We would encourage you to visit the Welcome Center in the lobby. Uh, there'll be some folks there after the service to get to know you and uh, find out more about you. And so thank you so much again if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, I want to pass along a couple of more announcements uh, before we continue worshiping through song. Uh, we have a men's Bible study beginning this Friday morning at 615 uh, in the Fellowship Hall. We hope that you uh, can join us for that. Men, you can sign up online for that. And also we have our next... Uh, monthly men's breakfast uh, coming up in this room in the sanctuary on eight at 8.30 on Saturday morning. And so we hope that you uh, will sign up for both of those events and be here. Uh, Pastor Mark will be speaking to us again about measuring up to manhood at 8.30 on Saturday morning. And then ladies, uh, we have our next Gather Around the Table event for you. We did this uh, about a year ago, uh, maybe uh, I think last fall, and uh, where, where women gathered in homes around uh, the Oklahoma City and Edmond area for dinner. And we're going to make that a brunch uh, this year that's going to be on Saturday morning. Morning, November the 9th, and that is a ways down the road, but we are looking for host homes for that. And so, ladies, if you have a, if you have a heart for hospitality and, and inviting women into your home, uh, you can find more information about that in the bulletin. The bulletin is the place that, for all the information about all that's going on at Faith Bible. October is a very busy month, and so we would encourage you to take a look at that this morning. But again, thank you so much for being here. Now, if you'll stand and greet someone, we will continue worshiping together. And thanks again for being here. Thank you, church, for being here. We are greatly appreciate your presence with us this morning. Today we have the honor and privilege of joining with five individuals in the act of baptism as they proclaim to you the church of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, this practice began with our Lord and Savior Jesus, um, and he showed us the model to, to follow after him, to be baptized in his name. And in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so today we have five individuals who have chosen to proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal decision. So join with me as we baptize. My name is Mark DeMann. I grew up in a Christian home where I was baptized as an infant. Um, but later, when I became a believer and committed my life to Christ personally, um, I was never baptized or made any uh, public profession of faith. And that's uh, something that I've really wrestled with uh, for a really, really long time. Um, and so that's why I'm here and, and want to be baptized. I believe uh, that Jesus died for my sins, and that he rose again. Um, I believe that he uh, is fully God and fully man, and that he is the uh, only way to salvation. I want to be baptized as a public profession of my faith in Jesus Christ. Mark, on your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Hello, my name is Jack Barnes. I am eight years old and I'm here to be baptized. I believe in Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose back in three days. I want to be baptized because you can, I can show other people that they can be baptized and believe in the Lord. Jack? Because of your profession of faith, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my, my brother, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hi, I'm Jonathan DeBoard. I'm 12 years old and I'm here today to be I believe that Jesus came to the world and died for us and rose again, and if we believe in him, we can be saved. I want to be baptized because I want to show everybody that I believe in Jesus. Jonathan sure has changed a lot. <laughs> He's getting to that age of puberty. All right, Donovan, can we replay that one, please? Can we replay that one, Donovan? Hi, I'm Jonathan DeBoard. I'm 12 years old, and I'm here today to be baptized. I believe that Jesus came to the world and died for us and rose again, and if we believe in him, we can be saved. I want to be baptized because I want to show everybody that I believe in Jesus. Jonathan, on your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My name is Ben Acton, and I'm 20 years old and a student at UCO, and I'm here to get baptized. I grew up in this church probably since I was about middle school. For me, I always just believed that I could be good enough, that I could be enough, that despite being in a very Christian family, that it was just believing these facts about God and not believing in God that was enough for me, and that then I had to start being good enough, that it had to be me being good enough. I believe that Jesus came to earth as fully man, as fully God, that he lived the perfect life that I can't ever possibly live, and that he died on the cross for my sins, and that he rose from the grave, defeating death, and that he did all of this for, so that I might be capable of glorifying him. I want to be baptized today because I want to publicly identify myself with God and his church, that I want to say to the world that I belong to God. Ben, on your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hi, I'm Isaiah Keneally, and I'm eight years old, and I'm here to be baptized. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that he rose three days later. I want to be baptized because I want to show the whole world that I love Jesus. Isaiah, on your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me today? Dear Heavenly Father, we, we rejoice together with these new believers. We thank you for their profession of faith in you. And I pray that this would be a testimony for those who may have not believed in your son or have yet to take the leap of baptism. I pray, dear God, that you would be glorified through this church and through their lives as they grow up and as they mature and as they live their lives. And I pray, dear God, that you would be just lifted up and help us to be uh, church members that surround them and, and bring you glory through our efforts in, in uh, teaching the Bible and, and reading your word. We thank you so much for this church and the, the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. I pray that we would never take them for granted. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
kindness that the Lord has lavished upon us. The song we did last week, oh praise the name. The church has always been a singing church. We sing to God, but we also sing to encourage our brothers and sisters to join with me as we sing. my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree his body his body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone. Messiah stood in Say. 
wings, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' come into this place and our heart's desire is to praise your name, is to glorify you, is to proclaim all your worth. And I, I confess that sometimes our efforts are feeble in doing that. But Lord, as we've encouraged one another with these truths and with this singing, Lord, I pray that you have been glorified. Thank you for this time together and these that have led us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Good morning. Today, as we uh, find ourselves in between sermon series, Mark just finished a series on heavenly rewards. Next month, as we move into the new worship center, we'll both be preaching, he and I, on a few passages in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. So in between those series today... I have a standalone sermon to preach, and what I've chosen to do is connect back to a sermon that I preached in August. It was a message from the first chapter of the book of Jonah, so no offense if you don't remember that sermon. I barely remember it, and I preached it three times that morning. So that's one connection I'm making with today's message, calling back on that sermon from August. I'd also like, also like to link what's here in Jonah chapter 2 to the baptisms that we are celebrating in today's morning services. What we have in Jonah chapter 2 is a theology of conversion, if you will, uh, and what's expressed in these statements of faith as uh, these people are baptized is contained with many of them within the words uh, of Jonah chapter 2. So go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, uh, to the book of Jonah. We'll be trafficking in its second chapter this morning. In the late 1940s, there was a gathering of academic and religious thinkers somewhere in Europe. I'm not sure where, but, but they've gathered. And one of the issues being discussed was whether or not there's a distinctiveness to Christianity. Essentially, how does Christianity really differ from all other world religions? Other religions have an ethic similar to the Judeo-Christian ethic. Other religions have a basic narrative that helps them understand and comprehend reality. Other religions promote justice and seek to help those who have been marginalized. So these ideas are being discussed in passionate but civil academic fashion. 
and in walks C.S. Lewis. He's a bit late to the assembly, but is immediately asked to enter into this conversation. And as an influential religious thinker, these colleagues of his, they want to hear what he believes is the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. And so very simply and obviously, his response was, oh, that's easy, it's grace. Grace, the unobligated, undeserved favor of God. We call it grace. And in addition to grace, another key distinctive of Christianity is the existence of miracles. To to believe in miracles is just the basic agreement that God can freely enter into the human sphere. He can alter what is physically possible or understandable under the laws that typically govern our realm of existence. That's a miracle. In other words, he created it. He can bend or suspend the rules to accomplish whatever it is he wants to accomplish. He can bring glory to himself in whatever way he needs to, be, to bring glory to himself, and sometimes that involves miracles. So in our passage today, we see these two great distinctives of Christianity, grace and miracles, come together in the second chapter of Jonah. And it's this aspect of Jonah, this outlandish idea that a man could be swallowed by a fish that causes many people to look at this book and just dismiss it entirely. It's often the story of Jonah that causes people to file the Bible alongside Grimm's fairy tales or Aesop's fables. Jonah represents one of a handful of stories in the Bible that that skeptics and doubters, they point to and they say, yeah, but I mean, come on, Jonah, you really believe that? So before we look at chapter 2, let me just mention briefly why I regard this book as historically true rather than a myth or a parable. I mentioned this back in August, but I think it bears repeating. Not only do we know from 2 Kings 14-15 that Jonah was a historical person, he really existed. That's where the prophet Jonah is mentioned outside of the book that bears his name is in 2 Kings chapter 14. So not only do we have record of Jonah's historical existence, but hundreds of years later, the Lord Jesus... He treats Jonah's story as thoroughly authentic. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Which means, if you respect at all the wisdom of Jesus, you will be very slow to call his judgment into question by denying the veracity of the book of Jonah. Jesus was so convinced of the historicity of Jonah, he compared the greatest event in history, the most important day in history, his miraculous resurrection with the story of Jonah. It's absolutely essential for a Christian to believe the resurrection, and in Jesus' mind, it was essential to believe the story of Jonah. Yet some people, when they teach Jonah, they they feel like they need to talk about the size of a blue whale's stomach or a whale shark's mouth. They, They share every account of a fisherman or a sailor being swallowed by some sea creature. I don't necessarily see the point in doing that. Because you see, seeking to explain Jonah's account scientifically, I think it almost entirely misses what this book is all about. This book is about God. 38 times in 48 verses, God is mentioned. God's presence and power and his purpose, they saturate the book of Jonah. If God wants a man to be swallowed and preserved in the belly of a fish, I am 100% certain that he can do that. And I really like how one guy put it. He said, if modern man can invent the submarine, a vessel that can take a couple of dozen men and have them live under the sea for weeks at a time, I'm pretty sure the God of the universe can figure out how to have a man live inside a fish for three days. Good point. But before we get into chapter 2, let's just review. Let's go back through what we saw in that first chapter. And we know that in the opening verse of this book, the word of the Lord has come to Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. That's what happened to prophets. The word of the Lord would come to them. And so the word of the Lord has come to Jonah. And the word that came to him said, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's the chief city, the most bloodthirsty and powerful empire on earth. And Jonah is not just to go to Nineveh, but as a Jew, Jonah is to preach against their sin and their violence and their pagan idolatry. That's Jonah's prophetic assignment, to go to Nineveh 
and to preach against it, to call out against it, the text says. And so Jonah exercises what we often exercise in our own minds and lives, which is selective hearing. Remember that phrase? And therefore, Jonah quickly says no. No to God, and he flees the country on a boat headed to a place called Tarshish. Tarshish is likely a port in southern Spain. It's some 2,500 miles from Jerusalem, over 3,000 miles from the city of Nineveh. And though Jonah knew that God was omnipresent, which is to say he knew God's presence is inescapable, chapter 1 tells us that Jonah takes this drastic measure chiefly to get away from the presence of the Lord. His thinking was this land of Canaan, Jerusalem, the temple, this is where God dwells most tangibly. And so he wanted as far away from all of that as possible. So Jonah boards this ship to Tarshish. God sends a storm on the sea, and in doing so, he exposes Jonah and his disobedience. Jonah gets tossed overboard, which reluctantly, I might add, which leads to a group of sailors, actually leads them to worship Yahweh, to worship the God of the Jews. And that brings us to verse 17 of chapter 1, where it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And I fully realize that whenever a preacher or a pastor seeks to teach on the book of Jonah or a passage or a storyline from the book of Jonah, he has to overcome what I would call the vegetalization of certain Old Testament Bible stories. And I don't have anything against veggie tales and, and the songs or whatever else correlate with this story, but there's a lot of children's material that doesn't really scratch the surface of what these narratives are actually about. In fact, they, in some instances, grate against what these stories are actually about. And I think that's true of Jonah. Jonah's themes are deep and dark and very much adult, uh, and, and they hit the heart of each of us. And so before we read the whole of chapter 2, let me just set something else up for you, for you. Jonah has realized that God has saved him from drowning. And because of that deliverance, Jonah finally prays. And what we read in chapter 2 is his account of this prayer. And so when you read this prayer, keep in mind that when Jonah is referring to the distress of the past, he's referring to the time that he spent in the water, descending in the water. Not necessarily the time that he's in the fish. In this chapter, it's the water that is the threat of death. And the fish is this refuge of salvation. His cries of distress, they are past tense. Those are the cries from the water. His voice of thanksgiving, those are present tense. That's in the fish. All right, so let's read the prayer. Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. Boy, Jonah had to go through a lot just to get there. Isn't that true of our own lives? We have to do a lot of stupid things, and then we realize, oh gosh, and we go to the Lord in prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. This is God's word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts today. Remember, three times we're told in chapter 1 that Jonah's desire is to get away from the presence of the Lord. And so now in chapter 2, Jonah has done an about-face. He's done a complete 180 
And he's now seeking the Lord in prayer. In chapter 1, we, we have a man who wanted nothing more to do with God, a man who could not bring himself to pray or to get to the point where he calls out to God in prayer. And so now in chapter 2, we, we have one of the most honest, rich prayers in all of Scripture. This prayer reads like a psalm. It's in the form of Hebrew poetry. And it tells us four things about the dynamics of seeking God's presence. Again, Jonah's going from fleeing God's presence to seeking God's presence. Seeking God's presence involves an awakening, believing, repenting, and worshiping. Those are the four points in your notes. Awakening, believing, repenting, and worshiping. Let's look closely at these dynamics of seeking God's presence. First, awakening. As you look at this prayer, you, you see a man fully realizing the depths to which he has fallen. And that's actually a theme as you work your way through these first couple of chapters. You've probably heard this pointed out before. Jonah is always moving downward. He's always on his way down. He goes down to Joppa, and he goes down to the port, and he goes down to the hull of the ship. And now he's descending down, down, down to the, the roots of the mountains. The text refers to it. He's going down. Moving away from the Lord is always a movement downward. In chapter 1, he is asleep in the boat, which I think is an image of his spiritual apathy. His apathy that, that had just crept over his life. His callousness to sin and disobedience while this storm raged and threatened the boat that it might break up. He's asleep in the hole. And perhaps Jonah, in his early days as a prophet, he had told God that he would go anywhere and he'd do anything. But that willingness had given away to, to terms and conditions. There were now limits to what Jonah might be willing to do for God. And so spiritual decline has a way of dulling our affections for God, doesn't it? Worship becomes lifeless when we're in spiritual decline. Prayer becomes thoughtless. The Lord's table is basically empty. Hearing the word just becomes routine, and, and your relationship with God sort of runs on autopilot. Your heart is no longer engaged with any of it. And that's where Jonah was, right up until the point where he gets thrown overboard. And now, as he, as he hits the water, there's a change that occurs. Once he is in the water, Jonah wakes up. He says in verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. We know from chapter 1, it was the sailors who had thrown him in, of course, but Jonah's realizing that they were just instruments in God's hands. It was God who had cast him into the deep. He says in this prayer, all of your waves and billows passed over me. He, he's fully aware that it's God who is superintending all of this. Look at all those references to you and yours in the initial verses of that prayer. But, but at the same time, he's not accusing God of doing him wrong. No, in fact, he's crediting God for doing what was right, for exercising his judgment against Jonah. And so Jonah desperately says in verse 4, I'm driven away from your sight appropriately. Verse 5, the, the waters close in over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. He has this sort of seaweed turban going on. Verse 7, my life was fainting away. What these words tell us is that God has taken Jonah to the absolute end of himself. And Jonah knows it's the end. As he sunk deep into the sea, he is awakened to the fact that God is God and he is not. He was awakened to the fact that God's divine wrath is like a flood and he, deservingly so, is about to drown in it. Interestingly, just as an aside, in the ancient world, the sea was an image of death and chaos and fear. The, the, the ancients didn't have submarines and scuba gear and shark week and all these things that we have. All they knew was the sea was deep and dark and, and they had no clue what was underneath there. The sea was the equivalent of death. Jonah saw this, his descent into the depths, as, the, as him reaping the effects of his disobedience. The, the belly of Sheol, which is referenced in the prayer, 
That's the place of the dead in the Old Testament. In Jonah's mind, this is judgment. His life is over. He's going to the place of the dead. Also need to mention this, when you think about the New Testament, you you think of another figure who found himself in the exact same place as Jonah. Another figure who also wanted away from the presence of his father. I'm talking about the prodigal son, of course. He took his father's wealth, he squandered it, he lived a completely disobedient life, and one night as he lay down in a pigsty, starving and without a hope in the world, Luke 15 says he comes to his senses. It's the same with Jonah. The judgment of the deep, the overwhelming waves, the the cold water that threatens his life, all of it causes him to come to his his senses. And so let me ask you this. What was it that God used for you to come to your senses? What awakened your heart to your need of him? What was it that he used to show you just how far you had wandered away from him. Oftentimes, before God's grace can be sweet to us, it has to be fierce with us. It has to ruin us so it can build us back up, and that is the reality that the prophet Jonah is now experiencing. And in the midst of God's fierce grace, Jonah, for the first time in the story, is praying. He's seeking God. And it's a, it's a result of being awakened to his spiritual condition, awakened to the fact that he was going to die and that he deserved to die at the hand of God. Plainly stated, Jonah is owning his own sin problem. He is realizing that God's not doing him wrong. God's not trying to, to screw up his life. He's realizing that he's the one who was skilled in screwing up his own life. He's the one bent toward disobedience and idolatry. And that experience, that is true of all of us. We begin to truly seek God when we are awakened to our desperate condition. If we're not awakened to our desperate condition, we can just cruise through life. We can just be self-sufficient. We can just rely on our own resources. But when we're awakened to our desperate condition, we start responding to the good news. And we respond to the good news because we're awakened to the, to the extent of the bad news. We stop running and we start realizing, and that's the first dynamic there in this prayer, is awakening. The second dynamic of seeking God's presence is believing. Verse 4 reads, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again at your holy temple. When God awakens you to your spiritual condition, your true spiritual condition, the first thing you feel is sort of a sense of despair. The the weight of your sin, the consequences of your sin, they hit you square in the mouth. They break you down. They unravel your soul. And when this happens, you're not blaming others anymore for your situation in life. You're not offloading your guilt as we so often do. God has awakened in your heart that your mess is yours. That what's wrong with you is you. And that's where the second dynamic of prayer comes in. Prayer that begins with an awakening soon gives birth to belief. It has to. It's the only option. Again, Jonah's awakening and calling out to God. It's all taking place in the water. Later, when he's inside the fish, he looks back and with wonder, he sees how God had saved him from the crushing deep. But in the water, awakened to God's wrath, Jonah has this, this desire to, to pray. Faith has begun rising up within him. So he says, I'm going to cry out to you, God. I'm going to put my hope in Yahweh. And so he proclaims, yet I will look again to your holy temple. And, and though you may not catch it on the surface, what that is, I will look again to your holy temple, that is a marvelous statement of faith. When Jonah looked at himself, he despaired because he knew he deserved judgment. But at the same time, he knew what it meant to believe. And he knew that he could find hope by looking away from himself, by looking away from his failure, and fixing his eyes upon God and his amazing grace. You see, looking in Scripture is often a way of describing faith. And this at least one instance, goes back to an event in the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering in the desert. They were wandering there, and they were afflicted. This time they were afflicted by 
venomous snakes. I don't know if you remember that. And so with people all over the camp in misery from snake bites, they're losing strength by the minute. They're, they're literally dying. So the Israelites, they ask Moses, their leader, to pray. And in prayer, God told Moses to make a bronze snake and to put it on a pole. Then God gave this promise to the Israelites. Anyone who is bitten can look at the bronze snake and, and live. And so Moses does it. People look, and, and once again, they're, they're, they're rescued. They look, and they live. And so thousands of years later, Jesus comes along, and he uses that story from the, from the life of Moses to help us understand faith. He says in John chapter 3, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever looks to him can live. And then Jesus went on to say, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And what is he getting at? He's saying when you look at the cross, when you gaze upon its horrific beauty, when you set your eyes upon what truly took place there, you will trust in Christ and you will be saved. In using this Old Testament story to frame this New Testament reality, the Lord Jesus makes it clear that, that faith is exercised by looking away from yourself, by looking away from your inability, from your failure, from the poison in your life and in your soul, and getting your eyes fixed on the grace and the mercy which flows from Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 of that book he makes a similar statement when he says, Let us also lay aside every sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. And then what's he going to say? Looking unto Jesus. The word looking or fixing in Hebrews 12.2 means looking away from everything else, away from circumstances, away from our self-pity, away from the sin of unbelief. We look off of all of that and we look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of what? Our faith. Looking is believing. And so Jonah looks to the temple. He looks to the temple. Why the temple? Is he putting his faith in in the temple, in the building? No, no. he looks to the temple because the temple is the place of sacrifice. The Messiah, Jesus, he's not coming for about 800 years, but Jonah, he knew the scriptures. He, he knew the temple. <clears throat> he knew the temple was, was where the Holy of Holies was. And in that place sat the Ark of the Covenant, and, and the Ark was where the Ten Commandments were contained. It was the law of God, and he knew that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his waist, and he would sprinkle sacrificial blood on the mercy seat of the ark. It's this slab of gold that, that covered the ark. He sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices as a covering or as an atonement for all those who had transgressed the law of God, for all those who had sinned and rebelled against a holy God. So Jonah's looking to the temple because he recognizes his only hope now is a substitute. He needs a covering for his sins. He has sinned. This is the awakening in his soul. But he also has faith that God will accept atonement for sin. Jonah's recognizing that his sin is deep and that grace is not cheap. So he looks to the temple. In effect, he puts his faith in God and in the righteousness of that God alone can provide because he cannot provide his own righteousness. And let me just say, that is belief. Belief is not merely acknowledging that there's a God. Belief is not joining a church. It's not even saying that Jesus is God. Saving faith is understanding that because you're a sinner, you need a substitute. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. You need Jesus Christ to die in your place. You see, the cross is not just a dramatic event where God goes and proves that he really, really loves you. The cross is a divine transaction where God exchanges the guilt of your sin for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so if you look on that, if you, if you see that for what it really is and you believe, then you are saved because you believe the gospel. And the primary feature of the gospel is that it's a gospel of grace grace. 
Lots of definitions of grace out there. Grace is simply this. It's favor to an undeserving receiver by an unobligated giver. It's favor to an undeserving receiver by an unobligated giver. Let me illustrate this by giving you three different scenarios, okay? Scenario number one, an employee. A lot of us are employees or have been an employee at some point in our lives. An employee, you work two weeks and you get a paycheck. So in that scenario, you have a deserving recipient, an employee who has worked for money, and an obligated giver, an employer who has said, I'll give you X amount of dollars if you work for me. That scenario has nothing to do with grace. Second scenario, a Sunday school teacher. Sunday school teacher does a great job all year, so you throw him a party. And in that scenario, you have a deserving recipient, a faithful Sunday school teacher, but an unobligated giver, the people who throw him a party. Though it's nice to throw a Sunday school teacher a party and you should do that, it's still not necessarily grace. Third scenario, an obnoxious neighbor. An obnoxious neighbor. You ask him to cut his grass, he lets it grow higher. You ask him to keep his dog on a leash, he lets it get out and it bites one of your kids. You ask him not to have parties late into the night, and he has more of them. And then when he gets sick, you take him a meal. He doesn't deserve anything. You're not obligated, but you show grace. And so what's the point of that illustration? The point is you begin to understand grace when you realize that to God, you're the obnoxious neighbor. You don't deserve anything. He's not obligated, but he gives grace. And I'd venture to say this. The Bible teaches that it's not until you begin to understand grace that you actually begin to understand the gospel. Consider a verse like Colossians 1.6, where Paul says the gospel's bearing fruit. It's growing throughout the whole world. He says, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Paul's saying understanding the gospel and understanding the grace and understanding his grace, those are the same thing. Some of you have maybe yet to understand the gospel because you've never, you've never really understood God's grace. You think you've earned God's favor like it's a paycheck. Or you think that as long as you do your part, God's going to do his part. None of that is grace. Grace is God loving you, showing you mercy, giving you every spiritual blessing and it has nothing to do with whether or not you're worthy of it. Because you're not worthy of it. When does Jonah understand grace? When he gets swallowed by the fish. You see, the fish is not punishment. The fish here is salvation. The fish is deliverance. The fish is this means of rescue. It's undeserved favor by an unobligated giver. When he was in the water, he knew he would surely die. But once he's inside the fish, he knows he's going to live. Which leads to the third dynamic. It's repenting. Look at verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Repentance means change. Change in what you think, change in what you desire, change in what you do and say. Repentance is evidence of authentic saving faith. But I think people misunderstand repentance. And for a lot of years, I had the idea that, that repentance comes before faith. You have to first abandon your sins in order to believe. But just think this through with me for a second. Since it's faith in Jesus Christ which saves you, if God required repentance before you came to faith, you would have to do the repenting in your own power. How would that be possible? If it were up to you, where would you find the desire and the ability to change? You see, repentance is not a work we need to do in order to receive the grace of God. That would just lead to despair. It would be like saying to someone that's drowning, hey, swim to shore and I'll throw you a life preserver. That's ridiculous. The drowning person needs a life preserver precisely because he cannot swim to shore. The good news is that God does not ask us to change so that we can come to Christ. He invites us to come to Christ so that we can change. 
Repentance is a gift of God. His understood kindness, as we've sung about this morning, that leads us to repentance. You see, repentance is not punitive. It's not punishment. It's a result of God's kindness. We are to be a people who run to kindness, not run from it. Run to God's kindness and repent of your sins. Change. Leave behind the old patterns of sin and unbelief. They not only grieve God, they destroy you. So the repentance that Jonah could not find in the boat was God's gift to him in the fish. Grace, the fish, that's the name we should give the fish. We should call her Grace. Makes repentance possible. In the fish, Jonah realized he was an idolater. He, he idolized the, the strength of his country. He idolized comfort and prosperity. His dream was that the northern kingdom would grow stronger, that its borders would grow larger, that its enemies would get weaker and its people would become wealthier. And in the fish, he realized his dream had become an idol and that his idols had to be smashed so that his hands would be free to receive what God had for him. The heart, he had, the, the, the heart that had him running from God was now changing. It, it was letting go of the worthless idols and laying hold of the grace of God that could be his. Which brings us to the fourth dynamic in seeking God's presence. It's worshiping. This man who had refused God's call, had been unable to pray on the ship, who, who had felt banished from God in the water and found repentance in the fish, he begins to worship. Verse 9, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Jonah's worship parallels that of the sailors in the boat. You remember them? When the sea was calm, they began to worship and sacrifice to, to Yahweh, to the Lord. So in this story, just in the first two chapters, though the goal is to get to Nineveh and to preach there, God is making genuine worshipers out of Gentile sailors and Israelite prophets. God is working. And the final point I need to make is in relation to verse 9. It says, salvation is of the Lord. That's the statement in verse 9 that highlights the fundamental message of the book of Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. The grammar sets it up to say salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. It's really the message of the entire Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9. The famous hymn expresses it like this. Could my zeal no, res <clears throat> Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. And that great truth is underscored by the two verses that bookend Jonah's prayer. So the two verses that bookend Jonah's prayer are chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 1, 17 says, The Lord provided or appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. So God sovereignly directs a fish to be in the exact right spot in the Mediterranean Sea at the exact right time excuse me, the exact right time that, that Jonah would be in the water and to swallow him at the moment of his deepest desperation. God provided or appointed. And then chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This same fish that God directs and commands to, to swallow Jonah is now being commanded to deliver Jonah. Now, do fish normally vomit up the contents of their stomachs? I, I have no idea. But this fish did. And he did it because the Lord commanded him to do it. So the last verse of chapter 1, the Lord appointed. The last verse of chapter 2, the Lord commanded. In between those verses, Jonah is saved. My point, salvation is of the Lord. In your life, the Lord appointed people and circumstances to deliver you from yourself. In your life, the Lord commanded times and events so that you would hear the gospel, so that you would come to the end of yourself, that you would believe in Jesus, repent of your sin, and worship the Lord with your whole heart. He did it so you'd understand grace, so you'd see him for his awesome beauty and power. If you've never laid hold of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
by trusting in him and for what he's done for you as your substitute on the cross. I pray that your eyes have been awakened to who God is and to his grace this morning. That you would throw off religious doing, that you would throw off whatever sense of worthiness or lack of worthiness that you might have felt over the years, and you would simply look to God in his grace, the unobligated giver, and what he's extending to you, the undeserving receiver. Do that today if you never have. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for an awesome time together. Thank you for uh, your word, for what we've read and attempted to study here in this place. Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate the, the hearts and minds of, of those that have gathered. And as they think about this passage and, and read it throughout the course of this week, Lord, that your spirit would continue to, to teach and instruct and convict and guide. And, and Lord, if there is someone here that's never looked to you for saving faith, that they've only run in the opposite direction of you and not responded to your fierce and at the same time wondrous grace. God, I pray that that would happen in their life today. Lord, thank you for this gift to gather here, to encourage one another in worship and in the word. I pray that that continues to happen as we spend more moments here this morning and as we leave this place on mission for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our benediction, please. Seth mentioned it toward the beginning of our sermon, uh, uh, service, but we've been about 28 years uh, worshiping together in this room. So that's about 1,500 Sundays or so. Um, that's not an exact number, but somewhere in that ballpark. And so we do recognize God's faithfulness and grace to us as we've come together each week in this place. Next week, we gather out there. Uh, we're hoping for 28 more years, 1,500 more Sundays uh, to exalt his name together in that place. Uh, if you uh, are a guest with us this morning, um, know this. Know you can find a welcome center out in uh, the lobby if you do not connect with anybody uh, in the room or have some questions about Faith Bible Church uh, and what it means to be a member here. You can go out to the welcome center. There'll be someone there uh, ready and willing to, uh, to help you out. If you have a burden today, simply have a prayer need or something else that's on your heart, uh, the elders will be down front. We're, we're ready to meet with you and spend as much time with you as you might need. The benediction is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. I actually began the sermon with it as we closed our worship time. It's where Paul writes, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Go give him glory. You're dismissed.
You give light. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope and you restore every heart that is broken. Sing it to him. Great are you, Lord, because it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, we pour 